This is Valley Views, our weekly conversation with influential and interesting folks from around the Wet Mountain Valley. Today on Valley Views, we're visiting with Jan Booth for part two of our interview on living and dying. Jan has worked as a nurse for many years at the intersection of the quality of life and the end of life as a hospice and palliative care nurse and as an end-of-life coach and educator. Jan, welcome back. Thank you, Gary. Good to be here. Thanks for sticking around for another week. We really appreciate that. Can you, in a nutshell, remind folks of what we talked about last time to get us started? Yes, we talked about my, how my experience at the hospice bedside really shaped the trajectory I've been on over the past 30, 40 years. The most important thing that I learned from my hospice years was that most families come into the end of life unprepared and often feel regrets at the end about how they spent that time. And that really affected me. I wanted to be a part of helping to open the conversation about living and dying. The, set, the other thing we talked about was some of the practical paperwork of advanced directives, the living will and the medical power of attorney, and how they are tools for a much bigger conversation that's helpful for families to, to have. We also mentioned that there are a large percentage of folks who are uncomfortable with this topic and probably shy away from it. Tell us again what you would say to those folks. Uh, why, why should they get involved? Yes, that is definitely my experience, that most people don't want to talk about death, dying, aging, diminishment, suffering. Uh, those are hard topics, and they often stir up fear, they often stir up grief, and those are not easy things to sit with and to live with. So it makes sense that one of the things that we do culturally as well as individually and as families is to avoid the topics. <laughs> So what I would say is to turn it around, almost 180, is to say, what if we thought about these conversations and this clarity of what is most important to me at the end of life? What if I thought of it as a gift that I'm giving my family, that mm -hmm. I'm giving my husband, that I'm giving my partner, my, my adult children? And that's one of the, if you think of, of this conversation of, of end of life being inside a, a building, and um, if we just bust through the main door and uh, expect people to just want to be open about death and dying, that's not going to happen. So what are some of the other doors we can come in? And that's one of the doors that I have found most welcoming, is to speak of it as a gift we give. <laughs> I know my mother many years ago uh, had my brother and I at the house. Uh, she gave me some blue dots and him some sticky green dots <laughs> and said, put a dot on the bottom of anything you want. And uh, I'm afraid she was a bit disappointed at how little that we felt we needed. <laughs> but that opened the conversation. And that is such a beautiful, practical way for her to do that. And sometimes that is one of the doors for a family that's an easier one to open, uh, which is talking about things. And of course, those things aren't just things because they have history to them. But I will tell you, I can see from my, my own millennial adult children, most of the younger generation are not interested in our stuff. Yes. So there, there's one little practical piece. You, you're going to need to have a plan B. They have plenty of stuff themselves. That's I know. right. Now, some folks perhaps are not familiar with hospice and what it really is, what it involves, how you turn it on. Can you give us a bit of a summary? 
Hospice services started in our country back in the 60s, and then through the 70s and 80s, they um, flourished and developed in many communities in the United States. So hospice is not a place, although some hospice programs have a inpatient center where people can go. Hospice is a set of services, and it is an interdisciplinary team, including a medical director, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, a nursing assistant, and a volunteer. Volunteers are a huge part of hospices. And it serves people who have what their medical team assumes is six months or less to live, which is often a very hard thing to predict. The truth is, most people come at the last minute to hospice. Mm-hmm. Most people, the average, uh, the mean length of, of stay is 18 days. And if you figure that most of us are dying slowly and that many people are coming into hospice through long-term care, where they might be for years, just a few days doesn't really give the benefit of all the services that hospice can provide. So just quickly, I can say that the expertise on symptom management, managing pain, managing shortness of breath, managing agitation, et cetera, it can be invaluable. And the other part that I think the hospice team brings is skillful conversation opening. And that can be a a wonderful addition to the care that a family um, enjoys. What would be some of the lessons you've learned at the hospice bedside? Are there any trends as death approaches for things they talk about? Do they talk about what they regret, what they particularly liked in life? Do you have any stories like that? You know, one phrase that you hear sometimes is that we die as we live. Uh, That's a little too perfect uh, (laughs) scenario. All of us human beings are complicated and may not always follow that, but there is something to that. So if I'm someone who tends to reflect and want to have conversations that involve meaning and values, I'm probably going to be having those. Mm -hmm. If I am in a family where we don't talk about feelings, but we talk about things and we make plans, that's probably more how we're going to move through it. So I think something to think about is, who am I as a person? What has been important to me? Who are the people that are most important to me? And have I, while I still have the ability to speak and communicate, have I said to the people I care about the things that are in my heart? Because often what our reticence leads us to do is to wait to have conversations or to say things from the heart. And often we wait until the person can no longer speak. So thinking ahead what is it that I would want to say? Are there things that I want to have done? And also thinking about who are the people who will be caring for me? And do they know what's most important to me? I would also say, think about who your circle is of people providing care. Who's your family? And where are the strengths in that system? (laughs) And where might there be some pain points? You know, Mm -hmm. where is there some turmoil, which in stressful times in families that turmoil can often get intensified. So what do I anticipate and what might I be able to do ahead of time to help that? And one of the biggest things people can do to help bring down the stress and the turmoil is to be clear about what you want. So that if there's a brother and sister that have been feuding for many years and they have different ideas about what mom wants, if mom has been clear, I want to stay at home, I don't want any more tests. I don't want to go to the emergency room. I want to try to die naturally. These are the people who are going to speak for me. That really helps. It may not heal the relationship between brother and sister, but at least gives clarity so that they're not arguing about what mom wanted. 
you are currently dealing with your mother being in hospice. This might be a sensitive topic, but how is that different from your normal clients, your normal patients? Yeah, it is very interesting, Gary. There are a couple pieces to that. One is that my mother and my father, I think, are unusual. Um, My father died 20 years ago. My mother is dying now. We come from a family who have talked about this for decades. We've had open conversations. My father was a minister. My mom is a teacher. Uh, There are four daughters. And we're all involved in health or teaching or services. So that's to say that it's a norm in our family to have these open conversations. So I am benefiting from what I speak to a lot of families about. Mm -hmm. So that now that we find ourselves here in these last days, weeks of my mom's life, it's not a crisis. It doesn't mean that I don't have sadness. I've had a lot of reflection, just even in the past couple of days, and some tears, but they're mostly tears of gratitude, because I feel like a lot of that planning and working towards this eventuality has been at a pace that my heart and soul can work with. And I'm grateful for that. So the other piece of it is that I can really be helpful in the family right now. In fact, I'm getting ready to fly out and be with my mom for the duration, because I know I can offer that to the family. And it doesn't mean that I won't find places to be there as her daughter, and not just as a nurse and caregiver. However, the pace of our what is called clinically anticipatory grief, the pace of that allows me to really be present with her because there's not a lot that's left unsaid. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you've practiced what you've preached over the years. Let me change the topic slightly. You are an author. You wrote Reimagining the End of Life, and you're a co-author on Bold Spirit, Caring for the Dying. Now, authoring a book is a lot of work. What drove you to that? (laughs) I decided to go to graduate school because I thought it would help motivate me and make a priority of deeper study of of the end-of-life field. So about 10 years ago, I went to graduate school, and this book came out of that. Yeah. One of the reasons I went to graduate school is because I saw that there was this whole grassroots development of a new direction in death and dying that was happening outside of hospice and palliative care. So Hospice back in the 60s was the original disruptor, kind of in the in the new use of the word disruptor. And it was shaking up how healthcare was done. It was shaking up symptom management and the use of pain medicine. It was opening conversations. But over the decades, it has become more and more institutionalized and not as agile. And what's been happening is that there's a whole interest within the general culture to have even more open conversations, to talk much before the end of life about death and dying. There's a whole kind of revolution happening in the funeral industry. There are death doulas now and death cafes and all kinds of things. And I'm fascinated by that. As a student of of the end of life world, I wanted to track that. So out of my graduate studies came a book mostly aimed at nurses and coaches to encourage them to use their voice and their natural leadership within healthcare to open conversations much earlier in the trajectory of illness. Okay. So there's a lot new in the uh, world of death and dying. (laughs) One thing we haven't spoken about is right to die. For folks unfamiliar, flesh that out a little bit and, and tell us where we are, especially in the state of Colorado. 
This is an important topic and a controversial topic, and a controversial because it involves values for people. The right to die is a movement that is, I would say, probably a natural outgrowth of the complicated medicalization of death. It is harder to die in modern times because there are so many opportunities to extend life, to try yet another treatment, even if it's a 10% chance that it may help, to try yet another surgery, to run some more tests, right? So that, in addition to the fact that many of us are living into our 80s and 90s, often with some increase in dementias like Alzheimer's and other dementias. All of that is bringing questions about how, if I no longer consider my life to be worthy, what opportunities do I have Mm -hmm. to either end my life earlier or to take control of my medical care? The right to die movement is part of that. It can involve medical aid in dying, which is what is now legal in Colorado and in I want to say 10 or 11 other states, but I may have that wrong. Medical aid in dying is in order to move forward with that, you, the person who is dying, has to be able to take your own medications. Mm -hmm. It's not something that someone gives to you. It is not euthanasia. It is you being able to take your own medications that are prescribed by a physician. And they're very tight criteria about who and when those options for medication to shorten your life can happen. So I think what I would say about that is not that there's a good or bad or a right or wrong. I would rather be a part of opening conversations about that because there's clearly need and a call in many people to have more control over the end of their life. And that's more what I would want to talk about rather than the rightness or wrongness of of Mm -hmm. taking medication. What is it that people are really asking for in the whole movement of the right to die? Okay. The radio station here is uh, all about music. There is a music piece to this uh, end of life. I know there's a group called Swan Song in the Bay Area that offers up music to patients in hospice. Have you experience with that? I do. I actually have quite a bit of experience with it. I'm I'm part of a, a movement called the Threshold Choir, which is uh, all around the United States, Canada, um, actually international. And these are small groups of people who sing at the bedside, mostly of hospice patients. And what's so interesting about this kind of music, Gary, is that it's different from music that a music therapist might bring. So a music therapist might come into a long-term care facility and bring music, play guitar, sing, play keyboard, get other people to sing, because they're using music to access memory, Mm -hmm. right? The music we sing through Threshold Choir, and I imagine through Swan Song as well, is different. There's simple melodies, simple harmonies, very simple words about love, peace, grace, trust, things like that. And they're not melodies that people are familiar with. Hmm. And the idea is that our tagline for Threshold Choir is kindness made audible. So it's a way of being present with people who are dying without words, but singing from the heart in the way that music can bypass the head and go right to the heart. And it often can be very healing for people at the bedside. We sing to caregivers as well. And I'm fascinated by what music can do, song can do, even singing without words, 
what the vibrations can do and what the intention of music coming through the heart can do as a means of communication, as a healing tool, as a way of bringing unity and community into the room. So um, I sing with a threshold choir up in Boulder, where I spend a lot of time. There's a quite vibrant end-of-life community up there. I sang for many years with a threshold choir in the Washington, D.C. area, and now I'm the, the chair of the board for threshold choir. So I'm loving this other part of the end-of-life world that brings in the power and the beauty of music. Hmm. Interesting. I remember... Uh, the last time I saw my mother, uh, we shared an interest in music, and I would take my guitar and sing sing songs that she knew. And in retrospect, I was thinking, what was the last song that I shared with her? And it was Tom Paxton's I Can't Help But Wonder Where I'm Bound. <laughs> which, which, oh, my God. And, and, there, and there was no planning on that, but it just seemed like, well, that's that's uh, that's, that's, that's beautiful. quite the thing. That's beautiful. Jan. We're running out of time here in part two. Final thoughts for folks out in Radioland. I think what I most want to say is to see the opening of these conversations with the people we are closest to as gifts, to see them as acts of love and courage. It takes courage to talk about death and dying to be willing to invest time in preparation and planning as most of us have throughout our whole life and to give ourselves the the honor and the dignity of careful planning as best we can for the last part of our lives knowing things don't always go as planned but consider that as gifts and acts of love and courage very good jan thanks for stopping by Thanks, Gary, for having this conversation. We've been visiting with Jan Booth, who is a hospice and palliative care nurse and an end-of-life coach and educator. My name's Gary, and we'll see you next time on Valley Views. You've been listening to Valley Views on KLZR 91.7 FM. Valley Views airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., and again on Saturdays at 10 a.m. Valley Views is produced by the volunteers of KLZR 91.7 FM. I'm walking on a rainbow with my feet on solid ground. I'm walking on a rainbow.